Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. This is episode 29, When You Only Have a Circumstantial Case. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you very much for joining me. This podcast has been created for an adult audience, so listener discretion is advised. There is discussion about death. I'm joined again this week by Jeff Johnson, pro bono solicitor acting for Max Eker. Good to have you back on the podcast, Jeff. How are you? I'm well, Graham, and I hope you're well also. I am, thank you. And this week we're discussing circumstantial evidence. I know you have a fair bit to say about that, Jeff. Yes, I'm afraid I do. <laughs> and that's why I named the episode when you only have a circumstantial case, because yes, it I is. Like yeah, it's very tricky. Very, very tricky when you only have circumstantial evidence in a case. Yes, and my observation over the years has been the more there's been a move to circumstantial evidence, the less actual evidence that the prosecution seemed to rely on to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. But then I'm old school. I won't go there. (laughs) (laughs) I have some feedback from listener David. He wrote to me, There has been occasional mention during the podcasts about the use of technology by the Singh family children, but I do not recall any precise details. Are you able to advise, one, did the police identify the use of technology habits of each of the Singh children? Were any such habits or consistent courses of conduct, read the use of technology, able to be established for each of the children? If so, what were their habits? Two, was it established exactly when each of the children's use of technology, social media, stopped being used? I replied to David, This is the best I can say. The last recorded contact was 11.10pm on the Sunday night. The last recorded SMS by any of them was Neelma to Archana around 8.30pm on the Sunday night. I can find no record or details into any of the other matters you raised. David was not satisfied with that reply and wrote, I must say, though, that I would have thought this was a very relevant issue that would have been pursued in any review of the investigation. The point in time that they differed from their usual practice of accessing social media would be particularly important 
as it would narrow down the time, they were probably impacted by something external to their normal lives slash routines. If the routines of all three children changed at the same time or similar times, that is very relevant. It doesn't tell us what the impact was, but assists greatly in determining the timeline. It seems the issue David raised was not high on the priority of the Queensland Police when they investigated the murders. Otherwise, I would have readily found the results. It appears once investigators established none were later than 11.10pm, they did not pursue that angle any further. You may recall episode 12, which was so long ago now. In that episode, I discussed the contents of Neilma's emails and SMS messages on her phone. The police knew about them, that is where I found them. And there was this weird draft SMS message that was found on Neilma's phone, not once, but twice. Can you meet me at the park behind my house at 10.30am? And then Neilma received the identical message from a friend the next day. What are the chances? How does that happen? That did not seem to excite the investigators at all, but it certainly made me curious. Um, can I add to that, Graham? Of the course. The was that none of the siblings used phones or texts after about 11.10pm on that Sunday night. All that was proved by that is that none of the siblings communicated by phone or text after 11.10pm on Sunday night. Is the only rational inference to be drawn from that lack of communication that Max Seeker must have gone to Grass Tree Close and murdered the siblings on that Sunday night? Of course not. That ignores the person that arrived at 8.30pm and has not come forward to identify themselves. It ignores the evidence given by neighbours about the goings-on on Monday night, Tuesday morning, and the absence of any goings-on on the Sunday night, Monday morning. It ignores the reasonable possibility that the siblings were prevented from communicating by the killer's before being murdered on the Monday night, Tuesday morning. The danger, in my opinion, is that a juror may focus on a single circumstance and convince themselves that it proves guilt. Facts may be proved by both direct or circumstantial evidence. Inferences may be drawn. But to establish guilt, guilt must be the only rational inference to be drawn and that requires a consideration of the whole of the evidence. Now, Graham, I'm not suggesting for one minute that your listener was focusing on a single issue. That's not what they were doing. That was not the context in which the listener raised the point. It was just convenient for me to illustrate the importance of considering all of the evidence, both direct and circumstantial, but then where a case is founded entirely or substantially on circumstantial evidence, you must not find the accused guilty unless his guilt is the only rational inference that can be drawn from the circumstances. That is another compelling reason why it's incumbent on the prosecution to put all the evidence before the jury and not cherry-pick as was done by the prosecution in the Seeker trial. 
and I'm sure listeners will recall both you and I canvassing that cherry picking in past episodes. We certainly have, and I've raised circumstantial evidence in the past in the podcast, Jeff, as you would probably remember. And I do. And I've raised issues like, well, do you just do you just look at focus on one point? Do you just focus on all the points? And and it depends who you talk to as to the answer you get. And I sort of related it to the links in a chain. And you've got to have all these links all connected before you have the chain. To me, circumstantial evidence is really complicated. Personally, I think too complicated for a jury in a lot of cases, especially like this one. Consider that this case went for 73 days in the Supreme Court. The judges summing up, you know, extended over some 275 pages and over 2,000 paragraphs. And to say the least, and this is my opinion, a lot of the evidence, including the cross-examination, could only have been confusing for the jury. A lot of it directed focus from the matter that was at the heart of the trial, and that was, did the prosecution prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Max Seeker went over to the Singh House on Sunday night, Monday morning, and brutally murdered those three siblings? That was the issue. And it's terribly difficult for lawyers, let alone lay people, to take evidence that's standard out over some 73 days, complicated, in my view, unnecessarily by both the prosecution and the defence, and then be asked to make rational, informed decisions as to whether or not they're satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt as to the central issue. Anyway, that's my opinion. Others may disagree, but it certainly, for mine, was a problem with the circumstantial evidence in this case. And in closing that particular thought, I must say that, to me, this was a classic case where it probably should have been a judge-only trial. The application for a judge-only trial was refused, but I still find it difficult to understand rationale for that decision that was made to refuse that judge-only trial. I couldn't agree more. I always thought it should have been a a judge-only trial. It was just so complicated, so many witnesses, so much evidence. As an example, the Chris Dawson trial and the teacher's pet, Sydney, you'd know about, he got a judge-only trial, and I always thought he should have gone for a jury trial and aimed to get some jurors on board who would believe the fairy tale that he is telling because he, you know, it was a fairy tale and he was expecting a judge to believe it, whereas he would have been better off having a jury try and believe it. I think you could do a whole podcast on what is beyond reasonable doubt. Boy, oh boy, wouldn't that open a can of worms? Well, you never know. Let's see how long it takes us to finish this one, my friend. (laughs) I don't propose to do a podcast on beyond reasonable doubt, I tell you. (laughs) It would do my head in. <laughs> sure, <boy. laughs> Anyway. Uh, Graham, is that all the feedback that we want to discuss today? Yes. Okay. Let me go to the substance of what I want to say. In episode 24, Graham, I discussed the serious problems with the prosecutor alleging that Max Seeker deliberately lied when he said he did not go to Grass Tree Close on Easter Sunday night of 2003. Then in episode 25, I highlighted the obvious 
problems with the prosecutor's assertions regarding the one ring 34 second telephone call scenario Max Seeker made to Neilmer on that Sunday night. And the fact that the only reasonable inference to be drawn from that 34 second phone call was that Max Seeker had made the call and told Neilmer that seeing she was ill, he wasn't coming over. Good night, sleep tight. Seriously, that should have been an end to the matter. To suggest that one ring call was made so as not to wake up Canal and alert him, and then ignore the obvious inference to be drawn from the 34-second telephone call, that Max Seeker couldn't have cared less about waking up Canal because he wasn't intending to go to Grass Tree Close, is beyond my comprehension. The prosecutor's submissions to the jury about that 34-second phone call and the one ring, in my view, were ridiculous, and I've already pointed that out. It does, however, illuminate the problems with juries and circumstantial evidence, particularly in complex, lengthy cases based in effect solely on circumstantial evidence, which we just discussed. Let me remind listeners of the following directions made by the trial judge to the jury. Okay, I'm going to read these out and I will use my sternest voice. 124. To bring in a verdict of guilty based entirely or substantially on circumstantial evidence, guilt should not only be a rational inference, it must be the only rational inference that could be drawn from the circumstances. And, 125, if there is any reasonable possibility consistent with innocence, it is your duty to find the accused not guilty. Graham, given what you and I have canvassed over 29 episodes of this podcast, I would be surprised if any reasonable and objective person could reach any conclusion now other than Max Seeker did not go to the Singh House on Easter Sunday night or in the early hours of Monday morning. Max Seeker did not kill the Singh siblings. The siblings were murdered by more than one person acting together and they were murdered on Monday night, Tuesday morning between the hours of 9pm Monday and 9am Tuesday. Jeff, I've been trying to work out in my head the Crown case, assuming you got to the Court of Appeal, assuming Max Seeker was given a retrial, been trying to work out what evidence the prosecutor would adduce to prove Max Seeker was the killer. And you may or may not agree with this. I have formed the opinion that as the evidence currently stands, they would not re-prosecute Max Seeker. Well, uh, Graham, let me take you back to the Leanne Holland case. Yep. No, you, well. You, I'm sure you do. <laughs> and you might recall in that, in the judgment of the Court of Appeal, Justice Holmes was the judge who didn't order a retrial, just acquitted uh, Graham Stafford. Mm. Correct? Correct. Okay. Interestingly, in essence, that was based upon the fact that on a retrial, the Crown in the Leanne Holland case would have had to come forward with a whole new scenario. 
mm. because mm. of the timeline. Correct. Now think about that in the context of the Seeker case. Here we have compelling evidence from Professor DeFlow that says not only one, but two research teams in Europe have now determined that the only evidence of external foam coming from mouth and nostrils occurs where the bodies are found within 24 hours of drowning. And you remember I highlighted the statement made by Alumbia Trial that also confirmed that, although it wasn't appreciated then, that that was a determining factor in time of death. It was only a determining factor in maybe arriving at the conclusion that somebody drowned. So that if we have a referral to the Court of Appeal, there is the prospect that if the Court of Appeal were to overturn Max Seeker's convictions, given the immovable insistence of the Crown that the deaths occurred on Sunday night, Monday morning, and the fact of the alibi that Max Seeker has for the Monday, Tuesday, there could be just an acquittal without a retrial, or alternatively, as you say, the Crown just might decide it's too hard on a retrial. Now, I know you keep saying that you don't believe there's any chance of the government referring this to the Court of Appeal, and I would hope in the interests of justice that you're wrong. But, of course, one of the driving factors in that decision may be the prospect that there might not be a retrial. Consider that. Am I wrong? Mm, hadn't thought of that. Because I thought of that very early in the piece. This is a little legalese. But, in fact, in the first petition, I highlight that as a matter of fairness that in the event of referral to the Court of Appeal, it would certainly be my submission that given the police narrative concerning the timeline, that if the evidence of Professor DeFlow were to be accepted and that timeline changed to the Monday night, Tuesday morning, the police and prosecution would be stuck in the position of having to reconstruct their entire case. How do they do that? I don't think they can. Anyway. As a matter of fairness, and perhaps I shouldn't have done it, I highlighted that that would be likely to be the submission in those circumstances, and I'm sure that wouldn't have pleased the Attorney General, the prosecution or the Crown. Well, just let me say, the deflow evidence is not the only reason that I believe they wouldn't and couldn't go to retrial. There is just so many problems with the evidence, just like the Holland case. There's so many problems they just couldn't go to retrial. Just on that point about them actually wanting not to go to retrial, never happened, mate. You know why? That will put the spotlight on the Queensland Police Service in an unfavourable light. They do uh-huh. not, they do not take embarrassment well. So they will fight they should, that every step of the way. What they should do, of course, is fight it in the Court of Appeal. That's they the proper place to fight it. They won't do that, mate. This may come as a shock. I was talking to an ex-police officer just yesterday, lengthy service, and he said to me, the only way this case is getting to the Court of Appeal is if you or Jeff Johnson become the Attorney General. So (laughs) who is it, Jeff? Are you stepping up or am I? I'm too old, right? (laughs) (laughs) 
I was once told that to be a politician, the first rule is you have to lie. <laughs> and uh, I probably have reasons now to believe that might have been the truth, but I but, certainly wouldn't want to be a politician. Oh, and the same officer, in the last episode, I, I gave a scenario of how uh, the police will talk down to you and tell you you're stupid when you try and suggest to them that the evidence you have is insurmountable. The same officer, ex-officer said to me, that is totally the way they will talk to you. Uh, I just say that for a comment. Well, Graham, let me relate another interesting little story briefly for you and your listeners' edification, because this one came right out of left field. After I delivered the petition on the 19th of April 2003, I was a touch exhausted and I took a few days off for a bit of rest and recreation. Late one afternoon, I was playing nine holes of golf at a golf course by myself and there was another gentleman who asked me if he could join me. Anyway, long story short, uh, we discussed what we did. We were both retired, what we used to do. And it turned out he was a retired inspector of police. Anyway, uh, I said nothing about acting for Max Seeker or the fact that I'd delivered a petition. I didn't think that was appropriate. But during the course of the discussion, we were, you know, sharing stories about people we knew within the legal profession. And he related a story to me which sat me on the heels. He said that there was a judge retiring who was on circuit and that to celebrate the retirement, police, prosecutors, court staff assembled together with his honour for some celebratory drinks. And during the course of that celebration, one of the detectives who had just finished giving evidence in the trial that had been heard and finished said to the judge, Your Honour, did you like the way we fitted that guy up? Mate, if I'd had false teeth, I would have they would have dropped out of my head. Thankfully, I don't yet. But I was staggered that a police officer would have such arrogance as to say to a judge relating to a case that that judge had just heard that they'd fitted up the defendant. I'll say no more about it, but as true as I sit here, that story is the truth. That was what was told to me by a retired inspector of the Queensland Police Force. We better not go down that rabbit hole. I don't even remember the guy's name. I put it out of my mind, and that's the first time I've related it since. But it shocked me. Anyway. You want to talk about the 17 bodies of circumstantial evidence that the Crown relied on at the trial, and which I referred to, I recall, in episode four. Yes, that's correct. Okay. I do. All right. So I'll read out the points and you respond. Okay. I will. One, a significant body of evidence to prove that the killings occurred between 11.10 p.m. on Easter Sunday and 7.15 a.m. the next morning. And the only evidence of the accused's whereabouts is his own word. Well, Graham, these are the points. You refuse to take a statement from Lisa Earl. You refuse to call Marcia Q and Claudio Seeker. You ignore or pass off as distractions the evidence given by neighbours 
of their observations on Monday night and Tuesday morning. You ignore the fact that there is absolutely no evidence of Max Seeker going to or returning from Grass Tree Close on Sunday night or Monday morning, and you dismiss without reason the compelling evidence of Professor DeFlo that is now available, supported by not one but two research papers that establish the time of death to be between 9pm Monday and 9am Tuesday. And then, of course, there's the evidence of the car in Pepper Street that was not consistent with either of Max Seeker's vehicles. So I think it'd be fair to say that point one in the new trial would have to be furiously reworked. I think there's some difficulties. Point two. The accused was the only one who it can be shown was expected to be at the house after 11.10pm Easter Sunday. Well, that might be nonsense. Where is the person that arrived at 8.30pm? Never found by the police in what was said to be an exhaustive and wide-ranging investigation. Never come forward. Why? What about the 34-second phone call and the submission that Neil and Max were worried about waking canal? That was just nonsense. My gut does cartwheels, Graham, when I think about the obvious dismissal of that 34-second phone call by police and prosecution. And you don't call Marcia Q and Claudio Seeker and hide the evidence that should have been given by Lisa L. What more can I say? Well, at the retrial, when point one has been, in my view, literally demolished, particularly by DeFlo's evidence and the refusal to call the various witnesses, point two becomes actually non-existent. Can't use it. <laughs> Probably fair comment. Three. Neoma likely believed Max Seeker was suffering from a brain tumour. I've never quite understood how this evidence was really relevant to whether or not Max Seeker killed the Sigmund siblings on Easter Sunday night, Monday morning. This is probably an example of evidence designed to influence the mind of jurors and distract them from the real issue. And that real issue was, quote, that the prosecution was required to prove beyond reasonable doubt that Max Seeker went to Grass Tree Close between 11.30pm Easter Sunday and 7.15am Monday and he murdered the siblings. Graham, even if Neilma was not a party to the story that Max Seeker had a brain tumour, that is not by any stretch evidence that he killed it. Might be evidence that he was a liar that used Neilma's sympathy so he could continue to have sex with her. Probably wouldn't be the first time members of the male race have used such tactics, scurrilous though they might be. Perhaps up there with those that this podcast has likely identified as liars also. Doesn't make them killers either, of course they would probably justify their conduct as acting in a noble cause. Ah, a noble cause. That's a conversation for another day. And I personally don't think point three would be used in a future trial, just my opinion. Four, 
the alarm was not armed, prayer sheets printed, and Neoma being in a nightshirt wearing no underwear. Well, really, again, there's no evidence that the 8.30pm caller ever left the house. So what relevance the alarm had not being armed on, you know, I just can't work out. For prayer sheets, so Max Seeker at some other instance at some other point in time looked at some prayer sheets and they found his fingerprints on those old prayer sheets. What does that show? I mean, I wouldn't have thought Max Seeker was terribly religious. And then Neil was being in a nightshirt wearing no underwear. Her tracksuit pants, top and underwear, were found in three separate locations around the upstairs rooms. How can it be said she was in a nightshirt wearing no underwear? The location of her clothing was more consistent with being forcibly removed. If this isn't blended example of distractions, I don't know how you'd describe distractions. My not favourite word, Jeff. I thought the salient point in four was Neoma being in a nightshirt. That was clearly misleading. The Crown knew her clothing had been scattered around the place. It was almost consistent with rape. But to say she was in a nightshirt not wearing underwear, just crazy. Let me say something, because it hasn't been raised, and I won't go into it in detail because it may become relevant at some stage further down the track if I finally ever get the DNA records. But, you know, there were said to be sperm heads that were found in Neilma's vagina, the evidence of which really didn't see the light of day at trial. I won't go into great detail about that. It does raise some questions to me. Without the DNA records, I'm not in a position to illuminate that any further at this stage. Mm. Five, that Canal and City were killed in their beds. This is quite simply beyond my level of understanding. Maybe I'm just dumb. How could the prosecutor seriously make such a submission? The narrative was that Seeker arrived on Sunday night. He and Neilma had a violent argument. He strangles her. He then gets the garden fork from behind the barbecue in the garage and bashes Canal and City, who have remained blissfully asleep in their beds during this violent confrontation. You can't be serious. About as likely as the murders being committed by aliens from Mars. Much more likely to support other evidence that there was more than one person involved in killing the siblings and that the killings occurred on Monday night, Tuesday morning. Not much else I can say about that, Graham. Likely they were killed in their beds from my looking at the crime scene photos. No, not only that, but who's to say they weren't killed first? Exactly. I mean, I don't have any doubts they were killed in their beds and they may well have been asleep. But it's hard to fathom on the police and prosecution narrative that they would have been killed after this violent confrontation with Neilma where her arms are bruised, she's strangled, and there's tufts of hair pulled out of her head. I just can't make any sense of all that. I agree completely. My view is, they, yes, they were killed in their beds, but not in the scenario that the Crown has put forward. Might have been more than one person, eh? Absolutely. 
And I keep thinking back to Neilma's hair being pulled out by the roots and her not screaming out. Anyway. Yep. Just before you move off that last one, there's another thing, and in fact it was highlighted by the judge in his summing up as well. There were no defensive injury, okay? Mm. And so there's this violent confrontation, but there's no defensive injuries. And again, you know, that's a twofold thing. And there's when you get that bruising on Neilma's arms, it's really indicative of somebody restraining her while somebody else is strangling her. It's a sensible explanation as opposed to the narrative that's pushed by the police and prosecution. The Crown narrative was that she was held down and strangled, but how do you hold down both arms and strangle at the same time? <laughs> bit difficult. Six, there was no motive for either Canal or City to have been killed apart from a desire to cover up evidence concerning the killing of Neilma. Well, let me just make these comments. What about the threats to kill the children because of the nefarious activities of Vijay Singh? What about the bruises on Neilma's arms? What about the footprints in the garden fork? When that is taken into account, this supposedly circumstantial evidence carries, in my opinion, absolutely no weight. Hmm. Yes, I think there's other scenarios that are just as compelling, apart from a desire to cover up evidence concerning the killing of Neilma. They were present in the house. That's probably one, the mere fact of their presence. Seven, the fact that Neilma was strangled suggests that her assailant came without a weapon and was known to Neilma. Well, Graham, where's the evidence that the assailant came without a weapon? It probably emphasises the importance for the police in relation to the finding of the garden fork on the 5th of May 2003, the suggestion that the assailant came without a weapon and was known to Neilmer is no more than speculation. Well, let me speculate. Maybe I can speculate that the garden fork was introduced and that was the reason that there were no photographs found of the garden fork or the barbecue before the 5th of May 2003 and that the garden fork wasn't found for 13 days after the murders occurred. That's as probable as the suggestion that the assailant came without the weapon. Anyway, where was the evidence that Neilma was killed first? This suggestion just suited the police narrative. It's no more than speculation, and I suggest, given what we've uncovered about the garden fork, listeners wouldn't be convinced by this and nor would a jury. Yes, I think point number seven would need some uh, furious reworking before it's uh, put to the trial. Point eight. The garden fork was used in the attacks and it was unlikely to be obvious in the garage to a stranger. See what I've said in relation to point seven. Discovered 13 days after the murders, no photographs before the 5th of May, and... Max Seek is alleged to have killed all three and then cleaned up so that there's absolutely no forensic evidence whatsoever linking him to the murders and he drives home, really. I don't know what your thoughts are, but I'm confident the Garden Fork would not be mentioned 
in a future trial. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Well, I'd be surprised if it was. If I was cross-examining, I hope they do. I think it'd be a brave prosecutor who would try and introduce that garden fork. Oh, boy. Well, we'll see. Yes, we will. Okay, so I'm going to read out points 9, 10, and 11 together because they can all be addressed as one. Nine. The impressions on the stairs were caused by bleach. 10. The bleached impressions were caused by feet and were consistent with socks having been worn. 11. The killer was obedient to the house rules about not wearing shoes upstairs. You're right, Graham. They can conveniently be dealt with together. Uh, given the Bond University research findings, and what you and I have laid out in this podcast. If you believe these footprints were made by Max Seeker, there is nothing I can say further that's likely to convince you otherwise. However, ask yourself why police did not immediately send off for DNA testing the carpet containing impression one. But I would have thought that the first thing any competent police officer would have done on finding that carpet with impression one would be to request DNA testing immediately to see if it was connected to anybody that had made the footprint. Maybe they knew it was not made by Max Seeker or they knew how and by whom it was made. If there's any other explanation as to why it was not DNA tested and why Mr Mapner was never allowed anywhere near it, I'd very much like to hear that explanation. Uh, hopefully somebody from the authorities will contact your podcast to provide that explanation. I'm going to go out on a limb again and say that in a future retrial, the footprints on the stairs, the bleach on the stairs, and the footprint at the base of the stairs would not form part of the Crown case. And as for point 11, that is just nonsense. <laughs> Obedient to house rules about not wearing shoes upstairs. <laughs> but, but was disobedient. I didn't even go there. Just makes me laugh. Disobedient to the house rules by eating and drinking upstairs, smoking upstairs, and throwing <laughs> cigarette butts in the spa. Bad, Max. Yeah. Well said, Graham. Well said. <laughs> I don't know, Graham. A little bird whispered in my ear that you may have something very interesting coming up in 
a future podcast shortly regarding the footprints. Yes. Yes, I do. It, uh, I'll ask you no further. Yes. Next episode. Okay. I'll wait with anxious breath. Yes. Twelve. Of the items missing, many were items of special sentimental value to Neilma. Heavens, it's hardly worth taking the time to deal with this. The items were never found, so Max Seeker's supposed to have taken those items and disposed of them, but he returns the bloodied garden fork to its place behind the barbecue for it to be miraculously discovered 13 days after the murders. If this wasn't so serious, it would have to be a joke. Most of the items were in fact not sentimental to Neilma. From memory, they included City's change purse and a shell or something of that nature that City had given to Shirley. I'm not wasting my breath saying any more. <laughs> and don't forget, you know, there was four or five photos of a previous boyfriend on Neilma's War and Max should call him Bad Max or Mad Max, he took four of the six or three of the five. Who does that? Yeah. I don't think point 12 would be raised in a future trial. You'll be coming quite repetitive, my <laughs> Well, it's going to be a quick murder trial, just like, and I hate harping back, but if this Holland case ever went to retrial, I predicted it would be a one-day murder trial. There you go. They'd call one or two witnesses and say, well, that's the evidence for the Crown, Your Honour. 13. The reason why Seeker strangled Neilma with murderous intent was feasible because the tumultuous and at times volatile nature of the relationship. Well, Graham, correct me if I'm wrong, but my view is that the evidence of this supposed volatile, tumultuous relationship was tenuous, to say the least. There was evidence. Irrefutable evidence that Neilma had called Max on the Thursday before the murders after she was apparently assaulted by a person she would not name, and on that occasion they had sex. The negative evidence from memory came in the main from Singh family members who had no love for Max. And the evidence from ex-wives and girlfriends of Max Seeker showed no tendency at all towards violence to women and in fact, there was some evidence to the absolute contrary, and I think he was described in his dealings with women as being a gentleman. In any event, this submission loses all impact when taken together with all of the evidence we've now identified that says Max Seeker didn't commit these murders. I can't agree more. 14. There was good reason to doubt the accused was legitimately expected at Grass Tree Close on the 22nd of April, 2003. Tell me, what evidence is there to support this conjecture? I'm blowed if I know. Yeah. It's just, just put in there and no evidence is referred to to justify it. Beyond me. Yes, I don't recall any evidence to show that he was not legitimately expected to be there. In fact, the evidence was exactly the opposite. I think that's right, Graham. Yep. Yep. There was evidence from his ex-wife, I think, that certainly somebody close to him, that the last thing he would, would have done had he murdered those children was to take those young kids with him to the murder scene. Mm. Um, anyway, 
15 and 16. The accused arrived at about 2 p.m. He lied about the time he arrived at the house because he knew that if he told the truth, he would implicate himself in the killings. Well, in answering this, I'll try not to let my anger show. What do you do? You cherry-pick the evidence. You fail to get CCTV footage from Stafford's city shopping centre because of, at best, monumental incompetence. You give false and misleading evidence to the court to cover up that monumental incompetence. The prosecution does nothing to rectify that evidence. The prosecution failed to disclose that the photograph of the phone shows the date to be the 28th of April and not the 29th of April when it was claimed by the SOCO the photo was taken. You do not put in the evidence of Melena P about picking up Auntie Anna and taking her to Stafford. That's the evidence of a 10-year-old girl. Talk about out of the mouths of babes. But you tell the jury that they should doubt that Auntie Anna was ever in Max Seeker's car and that he ever dropped her off at Stafford City Shopping Centre. And despite all this, you then assert to the jury that Max Seeker deliberately lied about the time he arrived at Grass Tree Close, and that was evidence that he was guilty of killing the Singh siblings. If the prosecutors can say with a straight face that that amounted to fairness to Max Seeker, I'll ride backwards to Burke on a donkey. I look forward to seeing that. You're probably right. They'll say it with a straight face, but it doesn't <laughs> hold water. They will say it with a straight on face. Any, on any score, it doesn't hold water. 17. He made statements to a trusted friend that amount in all the circumstances to a confession to involvement in the killings. The judge dealt with Miss B's evidence from page 180 to 193 of his summing up. He gave the jury a number of warnings with respect to their assessing her evidence. At paragraph 1797, the judge says, quote, Apart from the reliability of her testimony generally, there are particular reasons to be cautious about accepting Miss B's account of things. She testified that the accused said to her, on the night of the 16th of March 2008, close quote. His honour then goes on to list 10 reasons why the jury needed to be cautious, including, one, Miss B's notes of the conversation do not refer to the segments relating to remorse or whether he was, quote, busted, close quote. Two, Miss B did not report the conversation to the police for 13 days. And when she telephoned Zitney to say what had occurred, she was affected by alcohol. And three, in a recorded conversation Miss B had with the accused on the 22nd of April 2008, he did not acknowledge that he was the killer, nor did he accept that he had indicated as much on the 16th of March. Graham, you've had quite a bit to say concerning Andrea B in previous podcasts, and you took the trouble to interview her 
uh, in recent times. If you wish to add anything to what I've already said, please go ahead. Jeff, Ms B has had her 15 minutes of fame. I do not propose to give her one second more. Again, I can confidently say in any future retrial of Max Seeker, I doubt strongly that Ms B would be a witness for the prosecution. Maybe we'll see one day, Grant. Yes, maybe we will. Jeff, you're the lawyer. If this got to a retrial, can you tell me what evidence you think the Crown would produce to prove Max Seeker killed the Singh siblings, assuming always that they stay with the Sunday night, Monday morning murder scenario? Well, Graham, I can give you my opinion. Uh, firstly, I would say that for the Crown to proceed to a retrial, they would have to have some new evidence that wasn't available at the time of trial. So that might be interesting after the affliction of all this time because nothing changes. They're still required to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Max Seeker went to Grass Tree Close and murdered the Singh siblings. Whether that be on Sunday night or in the early hours of Monday morning, or whether it be on Monday night or early on Tuesday morning, they're still faced with that difficulty. So let's consider that they, in all likelihood, would find real difficulties now trying to change the narrative and allege that Max Seeker murdered the siblings on Monday night, Tuesday morning. There's clear alibi evidence, obviously indicates that the Crown was forced to go to Sunday night, Monday morning to convict Max Seeker on the first trial. So let's take Sunday night, Monday morning. The first thing they would need to do would be to produce an expert that can seriously challenge the opinion with respect to the plume of froth emanating from the mouth and nostrils of Canal as indicating that death occurred between 9pm on Monday night and 9am on Monday morning. Tuesday morning. Uh, Tuesday morning, I'm sorry. I apologise. And and overcome the research conducted by those researchers in Europe. Not one group, but two. Even if they do that, Graham, all that does is leave Sunday night, Monday morning as a possible time of the murders. It still doesn't prove that Max Seeker went to Grass Tree Close at those times and murdered the siblings. And let's see what they're forced to deal with to endeavour to convict Max Seeker on the basis that he went there Sunday night and Monday morning. Firstly, there's no evidence that he went there and there's no evidence of him returning home. None. Given what we've said and what I've uncovered, they'd be forced to call Marcia Q and Lisa L. There'd be no excuse for their not calling those witnesses. And in my opinion, given the evidence given by Zitney, 
of Claudio Sica seeing a silhouette when his statement says something radically different to that, there would be a good argument for having the statements of Claudio Sica admitted due to his death. Those are challenges from the start. And then they'd be forced to produce those officers who refused to take the statement from Lisa L and put the job log back into 1,500 other job logs without any notes on notebooks or other records indicating any reasons why they refused to take that statement. They'd also be forced to produce the officers who participated in the door knock 12 months after the murders. Those officers would have to explain why there appears to be no record of the conversation that Lisa L swears she had with an officer who door knocked in April of 2004. Oh, and in addition to that, they might have to explain the mysterious disappearance of page 47 from the door knock records. That all could be interesting for a jury to hear. It certainly wouldn't assist them in proving that Max Seeker went there on Sunday night, Monday morning and murdered the siblings. And probably they'd have to come up with some explanation of how the 34-second telephone call that Max Seeker made back to Neilmer on that Sunday night wasn't likely to wake up Canal. Hmm. You think about it. You think about it. What evidence is there that proves Max Seeker went to Grass Tree Close on Sunday night or in the early hours of Monday morning? There's none. Mm. There's no direct evidence, is there? Well, I don't think there's any circumstantial evidence left either. Mm. Um, You know, if any reasonable jury properly instructed convict on that sort of evidence, I'm a monkey's uncle. Anyway, let me now talk about the two major factors that I'm convinced caused the jury to convict. I might be wrong. I wasn't in the jury room. But the Crown went to great lengths and so did the police to enable the prosecutor to make two submissions regarding deliberate lying. The first being that Max deliberately lied when he said that he was at home all Sunday night and the early hours of Monday morning and did not go to Grass Street Close. And that lie was evidence of his guilt. Well, there's no evidence that I can see that establishes that on any basis. So how do you allege that he deliberately lied? Mm. The second deliberate lie related to the time of arrival on Tuesday. So the prosecutor boldly asserts that Max Seeker did not arrive at 2.20pm that day, that he arrived at 2pm that day, and that his deliberate lie about the time that he arrived indicated his guilt because he had no other reason to lie if he wasn't the killer. Would they still pursue that 
Uh, Lie, do you think, Jeff? That'll be really interesting if they decide to pursue that. Okay. They, so then they'd have to produce the officer who issued the job log requiring CCTV footage from 2.15 to 2.30. When he had the information, he must have had the information that both Max Seeker and his sister asserted that they arrived and Max dropped his sister off at the shopping centre at 2.10pm that day. They'd also have to produce the officer who was directed to obtain the CCTV footage. That officer would have to explain why there's no note in his notebook, why there's nothing in his statement concerning any request made for CCTV footage. And both officers would have to explain why it was left for three weeks after the murders before requesting that CCTV footage. Be interesting to hear why they thought it was more important to get CCTV footage of Max Seeker buying a pizza on the Saturday before the murders. They asked for that footage immediately, but leave the footage from Stafford City Plaza for three weeks before a job log is issued requesting that footage. And, of course, I'd also have to call Melena P. Well, I'm getting to Melena P. Oh, okay. Okay. They would have to call Melena P. And it'll be interesting. Somebody might have to explain why Melena P wasn't called at the initial trial. They might have to explain why Melena P says right at the outset in the first interview where she wasn't allowed any adult person to accompany her, that they went and picked up an auntie and took her to Stafford and it was Auntie Anna. So they might have to explain why that isn't recorded in the statements that were made by the officers that took the statement because I haven't seen it, probably not in their notebooks. I haven't checked, but it'll be interesting to find out if it was. Melena P was 10 years old. And for the prosecutor to allege to the jury, as I've said before, that Max Seeker deliberately lied and that the jury would seriously doubt the evidence of his sister that she was in his car and he took her to Stafford City in the face of the evidence of Melena P and the deficiencies with respect to the request for CCTV footage. And that's without, of course, the photograph of the famous phone. Remember, it disclosed that the date on the phone was the 28th when the Socko gave evidence that he took the photo on the 29th and there's no entry in the crime scene log showing him leaving the crime scene to take that photo. Mate, there is so many holes in the evidence relating to that so-called deliberate lie, you could drive a truck through it. So both deliberate lies could be in trouble in a future trial. Well, good luck to the prosecutor that wants to have a crack at that. Hope I'm on the other side. (laughs) What about the garden fork? You know my Uh, thoughts on that. Well, you know... Who knows? Maybe we can find some more garden forks or footprints (laughs) before the retrial.
who knows, maybe that's a possibility. Somehow I doubt it. And let's wait and see what might happen with the photographs. I doubt that any photographs will materialise that will change what you and I have both said about the garden fork. And as far as the footprints are concerned, in the face of the Bond Uni report, the issues that we've raised with respect to the the placing of the footprints, the evidence that I've uncovered relating to the plastic covering being removed at lunchtime on the 28th and not being dislodged, as the Socco claimed at 4.30 on the afternoon of the 28th, I would seriously doubt that they would endeavour to raise the footprints and it'll be interesting to hear their explanation as to why Impression 1 wasn't DNA tested nor allowed anywhere near Mr Matner. Come on, you know, they've got to have massive problems with respect to all of those factors in my humble opinion. But they do have the confession. Well, I highlighted earlier the way in which the judge dealt with that confession, and that's only a small part of a number of things that the judge raised in his summing up. The warnings that the judge gave the jury with respect to Andrea B's confession won't change. You know, only likely to get worse for the prosecution, I would suggest. Do you think they'd call her, Jeff? They may do. But let me say this. This time around, I think the jury would certainly see the video of the last interview between Zitney and Andrea B. I haven't raised this before. Defence counsel made a significant error in referring to that video on a number of occasions while cross-examining Andrea B, but neglected to get that video before the jury. There was considerable argument with the judge because the jury came back and said, we want to see the video. The judge was left with no alternative at that stage other than to refuse to allow that to happen because of the error made by defence counsel. Think about it, Graham. That jury would have scratched its head and said, well, if defence counsel was raising these vi- this video throughout the cross-examination, why didn't he let us see it? What was on it that defence counsel didn't want us to see? Well, Graham, you've seen it and I've seen it. There's nothing on it that defence counsel wouldn't want a jury to see. But unfortunately, the jury at the trial was left with that dilemma. And don't forget, Andrea B, I got inundated with, with comments after that episode, the most out of the whole 29 episodes. Oh, boy. So if that's the listener's reaction, you can imagine what the juror's reaction would be. One would think properly dealt with your listeners would be reflect what a reasonable jury yeah, might Yeah, well, the listeners are people who are selected for jury service. So I, I have the utmost respect for them. I think they're very insightful. Mm. Jeff, just cut to the chase. What is it, well, mate? Well, to sum up, and again, this is only my opinion, and if people disagree with me, if there's lawyers or judges that disagree with me, don't hesitate to call up and 
challenge what I'm saying. I've got an open mind. You know, please correct me if I'm wrong. But in summary, Graham, in my view, there's insufficient evidence as it stands upon which the prosecution would be likely to go to a retrial. I said earlier that it may well be that if we get to the Court of Appeal, as we certainly should, that the Court of Appeal might take that out of the prosecution's hands and simply acquit. Anyway, Mm. that might be wishful thinking. But Mm. if a retrial was ordered, as things presently stand, I would say that there's not only insufficient evidence to go ahead with a retrial, but there's no evidence upon which the prosecution, in my view, are likely to be able to convict Max Seeker. I'm even wondering whether there would have been enough evidence to go to a committal proceedings, as it stands now, if and he hadn't been arrested. I've been in committal trials where magistrates have had the fortitude to refuse to commit, and they'd be very tempted to refuse to commit based upon the scant evidence that, well, in fact, if there's any evidence upon which the matter could proceed to trial. This is a scary situation. We've got a conviction on a triple murder and a guy serving 35 years. You know, my position has been, I don't know whether Max Seeker murdered those children, but the evidence doesn't point to him murdering those children. And looking at it now, not only doesn't point to him, it's There's nothing to connect him with it. You know, Graham, I agree. But also, in addition to that, you've got evidence, you know, the evidence that you found out about Joe Cool, for instance. (laughs) There's plenty of other evidence that indicates that there were numerous people, including relatives of Shirley Singh, that had a serious axe to grind with Vijay Singh. Anyway... You know, we don't need to go into that at this stage. It's not our job to prove that somebody else did this. The police had done a proper investigation. They may have got the real killers. There is cogent evidence now that more than one person is likely to have murdered these siblings. You've only got to to examine the serious nature of the murders, the circumstances surrounding the three children all being murdered, to have the gravest doubts that one person could have carried out those murders, removed all trace of his presence at the scene, have no DNA or other evidence, forensic evidence, that connects him with the crime scene in any meaningful way, and and be convinced that Max Seeker committed the murder. I've said it before, and I'm always open to have my mind changed, but all that's happened is my view has hardened in recent times to the extent that this is probably the gravest travesty of justice I've seen in 50 years of practice. And we've got an Attorney General who's been given the green light by the Court of Appeal to simply refuse to refer the case to the Court of Appeal give no reasons for that refusal and not be able to seek judicial review. It's beyond my capacity as a lawyer to understand how that could satisfy anybody's sense of justice. And I'd love the Attorney-General to have the 
guts to come forward and explain why in all of the circumstances that you and I have identified that Max Seeker doesn't deserve to have this return to the Court of Appeal. Mm. There's two aspects to this, Jeff. There's the did Max Seeker receive a fair trial aspect and then there's the did Max Seeker murder those children aspect. I think we've ticked both boxes. Like you came at this looking to tick the first box if the evidence was there. I was coming out to tell the story, but I wanted to be able to show whether the evidence proved that he did or he didn't. Mate, I I think we've ticked both boxes here. Well, Graeme, you might have some sense of my background and, you know, I've been dragged reluctantly kicking and screaming to participate in a public podcast. From the outset, my sole focus was to decide whether Max Seeker had received a fair trial with the caveat that should I find through the course of that evidence that that indicated to me that he had in fact killed those siblings, I would have withdrawn my services. But having gone through the fair trial situation, I decided long ago that he'd had anything but a fair trial. But now, given all of the things we've identified, I have major concerns as to how those convictions were in fact achieved, major concerns. And if the Attorney General and the government doesn't share those concerns, the general public and me and you, I think are entitled to know why. I think I can sum it up by saying, mate, that this is Justice Queensland style. You're welcome. Well, I would have hoped that, you know, the justice system in Queensland that I've been a part of for all of those years might have been better than that. I'm disappointed. Well. I can't add to that. Well, let's hope that somebody with a sense of justice sees it the same way. I might say, Graham, it's also disappointing that I know you've had some feedback from some lawyers who are listening, and that's great. But you would have thought that this might have come to the attention of maybe the president of the Law Society or the president of the Bar Association, and that there might have been concerns on the part of those sort of organisations about the way in which the Holzinger decision can and will impact upon people who've been wrongly convicted based on substantial miscarriages of justice. They've been conspicuous so far by their absence. And I'm still waiting for that not-so-narrow-minded investigative journalist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll leave that to you. Jeff, I think we've pretty much covered the topic of when you only have a circumstantial case. Do you agree? Graeme, I I do agree. You know, in a 73-day trial, there's always something else that you might suddenly think, I wish I'd said that, but I think we've given your listeners more than enough to digest and more than enough to give them reason to to form the conclusions that we formed based upon the state of the evidence. Uh, And I don't think anything further is likely to convince any listener that's not convinced at this stage otherwise. I agree. I agree. So please join us uh, for episode 30, which I've called 
Matt steps up. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. <laughs> I do very much. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> For the listener, Matt is a listener himself who contacted me back in November after listening to episode 17, Impressions Count, about the footprints and the flooring and the, the bleach and the steps up the stairs. Matt is in the carpet and floor industry. He offered to do some experiments for us, and they turned out really, really interesting. So that's in episode 30. Yep, I'm sure the listeners will be very interested in the outcome of that, Graham. Yes, Matt steps up. So join us then. Thanks again, Graham. Appreciate your effort. Thanks, Jeff. If you follow the podcast, you will be advised when a further episode is released. Please rate and review the podcast. It does raise awareness of the podcast. If you like the podcast, tell your family and friends. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the Facebook page, Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy, or directly via email, looseends2003 at outlook.com. This episode was written and fact-checked by Jeff Johnson. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music, Before I Go, by RKVC. You will find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks for listening.